Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. an interesting encounter at the bus stop this week. Every morning, my son and I leave about 15 minutes before the bus is due to arrive because we kind of have the longest circuitous walk. And so we walked around and I have my cup of coffee and we get there and a new family has moved into the neighborhood. And so the two children showed up at the bus stop and the daughter looks up in the sky and says, oh, look at the sky, it's so beautiful. And we said, yes, isn't it? It's, you know, it's crozet mornings. You know what, how beautiful the sky is here. I said, yes, and she said, it's said that when an artist dies, God lets them paint one streak in the sky. And before I could help myself, I said, that's not in the Bible. <laughs> and she looked at me and she goes, do you have a Bible? And I was like, a few. And Luke goes, do you not know what my mother does? And she goes, no. And I said, I'm a pastor. And she's just like, and I said, it means I'm in charge of a church. She goes, oh, I guess you do have a Bible. A few. And I've been reading a lot of them lately because we've been preparing. We've been working up until called General Conference. And this is that moment when the church will gather together from all over the globe and both clergy and laypersons in equal number will be given the opportunity to prayerfully discern together, to engage in holy conferencing, and finally come down to a decision on how this denomination will stand on the issue of human sexuality and inclusion. And Many Methodists who are not delegates but who are part of this church have been engaging in the same kind of spiritual work that we have been engaging in here. Not everyone is as crazy as I am to do it in worship, but they have been doing it in small groups or they've been doing it in personal devotionals. We've been engaging in this because this is the work that we must do to prepare ourselves to hear the Word of God. And as we move toward this, I know that there are people who are feeling the fear and the anxiety in their hearts, and I want to recognize that it's okay. There's nothing wrong with you. You are not failing as a disciple if you are afraid. But we want to constantly gauge ourselves and remember that God is with us and God is for us. And if we open ourselves, God will be at work through us. So we have nothing to fear. And sometimes we have to put our fear in check and just remember that Somehow, some way, miraculously, God is going to lead us forward from this. And I believe no matter what happens, and this is my testimony at 930 and it's my testimony here at 11, that no matter what happens at the conclusion of this called general conference, that we are going to be okay here in Crozet. We are going to continue to do our work. We are going to continue to worship. We are going to continue to do everything we do with high standards of excellence to bring honor and glory to God. And we are not going to stop building the kingdom here. So no matter what happens, we are going to continue the work that we have before us and the work that we have already done, and nothing shall stop us. Amen? Okay. So our scripture today is not one of the texts that are traditionally used in this discussion. However, about 10 years ago, I've been 
working through this text, and it's a very difficult text, and I confess to you right now that even as I have preached on this text once this morning, that it continues to confound me, it continues to make me uneasy, because one of the conversations that we've had when I see people one-on-one is that they say, you know, I wish Jesus had just told us what to do. I wish Jesus had just come out and said, this is how you shall feel about this issue. And unfortunately, that's not Jesus' way, and he didn't do that. And so when we look at Jesus, we're hoping to get some clarity, although I I confess to you that I'm a little more confused now than I was before. So as we continue to discern this together, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will begin to do some work here and help to make some sense of this text. So what is going on here? What we find is that Jesus is in ministry He's traveling around. He was an itinerant pastor. He's traveling around. And crowds follow him because we're at Matthew 19. Jesus has been in ministry since chapter 4. And as soon as he went into ministry, not only did he start to preach and teach the Word of God, but he started to heal. He started to rid people of their demons. He started to heal people of physical illnesses. He started doing miracles that fed people and gave them wine at weddings. He's doing things that people enjoy, that benefit people and bless them. And so crowds have heard of this and they start to follow him. And some of them begin to follow him because they just want to see what he's going to do next. Some of them are following him because they want his blessing for themselves, and others are following him because they're waiting to see how this is going to go down. As we see very quickly in our passage today, the Pharisees show up. And who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees are the rulers of the synagogues. Post-Babylonian exile, the church has already, the church, it's technically Judaism, but this religion has already kind of separated slightly Upon reentry and the rebuilding of the temple that was destroyed by Babylon, the priesthood, the Sadducees, take up their work again in Jerusalem. But they are located in Jerusalem, and they oversee the sacrificial system. They're not as concerned about teaching people the Torah. Instead, what they want is that people will know enough of the Torah to know that they need to come and make their offerings, and so therefore the priesthood and the temple worship will continue as it does. But at this point, there are Jews all over the region and not everyone can get to the temple routinely. And so synagogues were something that was created in the Babylonian exile so that people would have a place not necessarily to worship, but to continue their growth spiritually, to read the scriptures, especially the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and to continue to strengthen their religiosity so that when they got back into the promised land, and even as they're living in the promised land now, they would continue to have a tether to the commandments, even if they can't get down to the temple all the time. The Pharisees oversee the synagogues. They are your scholars. They are the best and the brightest. If you want them to quote for you Leviticus 21.12, they can do that. And I must tell you, I have met Orthodox Jews who can do that today, and it is astounding. You can throw out any citation and they can give it to you. That's how much they study the Torah. And when they show up, they're here with nefarious intentions. They have shown up to trick Jesus. They want to catch him. Unfortunately for them, he hasn't done anything wrong. They've been waiting to get him on doing something incorrect with which they could charge him by temple law. Unfortunately, he doesn't do that. Even in the passage where they catch his disciples walking through a field and picking grain to eat on the Sabbath, Jesus isn't doing it. They are. And so they say to him, you know, look, look what your disciples are doing. 
but they can't get him on that. And so now they've shown up and they've decided to switch to catching him with his words. And as they do this, it says some Pharisees, we know there were at least three that would show up because Torah required that you had to have one person charge and two independent witnesses. At least three of them would have shown up. So not only are you envisioning being grilled by one of the reigning authorities of the Torah, but they brought backup. And they're all standing here, and they toss this out to Jesus. And they decide to try to entrap him on the issue of divorce, which is ironic because we know from the Talmud and from other Judaic sources that schools of Pharisees didn't quite agree on divorce. They didn't always agree on why you could get a divorce or how it would be done. And so for them to throw it out at Jesus is ironic because they don't agree on what he's going to say either, but they're using it to try to entrap him and snare him. And he starts off by doing something quite brilliant. And it's one of those moments where even though this passage is only 12 verses, Jesus covers so much scriptural and theological ground in these verses, it's mind-boggling to me. And he's brilliant about it. We just need to take a moment and recognize that, yes, Jesus is God, but it's still brilliant. Still brilliant what he does. So they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? Notice a little clause at the end. Any cause. Can I get to the divorce just because I want to get a divorce? And he answers them. And what he's going to do is he is going to quote not one, but both creation stories. That's right. There's two in there. What we end up going back to see is that he's quoting Genesis. And Genesis chapter 1 contains what is referred to in, in scholastic circles as the priestly narrative. It's the one you're probably familiar of. There's six days of creation. God creates the heavens and light and dark. And God creates all of the life on the earth. And God creates human beings. And then because God does all this work, because we all know, ladies, that giving birth is exhausting and so you need rest afterwards, then God rests on the seventh day and hallows that and makes it holy, which is why Judaism celebrates a Sabbath as a holy day of rest. That's the first story. In the story, God is referred to as God, capital G-O-D. We see this as the name by which God is referred to. What it reveals is that the priesthood tell a story about God's power and creation that conveys a theology of omnipotence, omniscience, and God's ability to bring forth power through the word. Who but ministers of the word would want a story like that? Our words are powerful. Of course, we love this story. And you'll notice that God is very intentional in the story. God spends the first three days creating environments and areas which God will then later populate. God does never pull the, the thing where you go to the, to the pet store and bring home the fish before you set up the aquarium and you're standing here like, oh, this is going to be bad. God doesn't do that. God creates all the spheres from the skies to the seas to the land and gets them prepared. And then on days four, five, and six, God creates the life. All of the creatures of the sea, all of the birds of the air, all of the animals of the field, and specifically the cattle, and the creepy crawly things we all love as insects. All of those are created. And only then does God say, let us create humankind in our image, male and female, which is what Jesus quotes. That in order to fulfill the image of God, it took both of them in order to do that. He quotes that first. The second creation story, oh, by the way, at the end of the days, God says, this is good. This is good, right? It is good that this looks this way. These are good things. God celebrates what God has done. The second creation story is a little messier. It's actually the older story. This is what we call in scholastic circles the Yahwistic narrative because it traces itself back to the name Yahweh. 
When you were reading your Bible, you might have noticed that there are occasions where you see capital L and then small cap O-R-D. In Hebrew, those are the letters for Yahweh, the personal name of God. And what we find is that shortly after we start to write Scripture, and there are Jews who are able to read the Scriptures, specifically in the synagogues, as Jesus does, what happens is they take to heart the commandment not to take the Lord's name in vain. What they figure out is, if I don't say the Lord's name, I can't take the Lord's name in vain. And so when they would read that piece, they wouldn't read Yahweh, they would read the title Lord, which is why you see Lord and not Y-H-W-H, which we wouldn't be able to pronounce anyway because there's no vowels in Hebrew. So we get Lord. That's where that comes from. You can start to trace in the Torah what the source of the narratives and the stories and the law are based upon the name that they give God. If you think about this, you can see this. If you take a bunch of written prayers, prayers written by people who are trained in theology and prayer tend to look and sound and feel a little different from people who are just kind of winging it right? Sometimes I love listening to my son pray because every now and then he tries to throw out some bizarre weird title for God. And I'm going, what are you doing here? And he said, well, I just thought that we should give thanks to the one who made sure that I have PlayStation. I was like, I don't think that's one of God's official titles. I'm pretty sure that's not a theologically based term you're using there, but nice try. And so we pay attention to the titles that people use because one, it can be an indicator of where it's coming from. What is the source of this? And so we have these two different stories, but Jesus doesn't just give preference to the priestly narrative or the layperson narrative. Jesus quotes both of them succinctly. The piece of the layperson narrative that he used is, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The second story is messy. It presents what the priestly version might say is not the best theology. In their, in their theology, God is so powerful, God doesn't have to touch things, God doesn't have to do magic. Instead, God simply calls forth light from darkness, and it is there. God simply calls forth the dome of the sky, there it is. God calls forth life, and here it comes. There's no messiness to it. The first part of the second story, which starts at Genesis chapter 2, verse 4b, starts out by undoing some of the things that were previously completed. God didn't rest because there was still work to do. All the work was done. But suddenly in the second creation story, it has not rained, for God hasn't sent the rain, and there was no one to till the ground. So therefore, God creates someone to till the ground. In the Hebrew, God creates the Adam to till the Adamah. So the earth is known as the Adamah, and the first human being is a male named Adam, which we as Americans like to call Adam, and it's based upon the relationship between the tiller of the ground to bring forth fertility and the earth itself. And so God looks at this and goes, this is not good. Priests love this narrative. God made a mistake? No, 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 no. We fixed that in the first narrative. Instead, God says, this is not good. So let me try to find a helper who will be a partner in the Hebrew. And so God goes back down and starts making things out of clay and presents them to the man and says, here, what do you think about this? Apparently, he gets to name all the different types of cattle, all the animals of the field, and all the birds of the air, and none of them are a good fit. I mean, at this point, we're talking hundreds of animals, and God can't figure out the right one. Again, this is, this is the kind of theology that makes priests all nervous on the inside. And so here, God finally becomes an anesthesiologist 
puts the Adam to sleep, pulls out a rib, which is why all y'all guys are a little wonky because you got one rib missing on this side, and then wakes him up to discover that from that rib, he has created the woman. And if we could read the Hebrew, we would see that we suddenly switch in the Hebrew from calling him the Adam to the Ish because he wakes up to discover the Isha. The man and the woman. No longer is he referred to as the Adam because his new connection is not to the earth, it is to her, the Ish and the Isha. And here things get even more fun because we shift into the third part of the story, which is this encounter with a serpent. And that's a whole other worship series. So we're not going there right now. But one of the things that we find out in that story that is germane to what we're doing here is that this idea of putting a fence around the Torah, that if I'm not supposed to say God's name in vain, then I won't say God's name, is exactly what Adam does. He was, Eve wasn't around when God told Adam not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She wasn't created yet. So once she's created and he's telling her how things are, he says to her, you can't eat that fruit, you can't even touch it. Because if I can't touch it, then I'm certainly not going to be able to eat it. And so he puts a little space and a little buffer there for her. It's the same thing that's going on other places in the Torah. This idea of having a buffer. And so when Jesus starts to quote these two stories and give credence and power and authority to both of them, it's a brilliant move. And while he doesn't give scripture and verse, you know, you know that those Pharisees heard him quoting both stories and were like, hmm, okay. This is going to be a little more tough than I thought it was going to be. So then they shift in. He's quoted the the Torah. And then they say, well, then why did Moses let us do this? Now, Moses is the preeminent everything in the Torah. He is not only the prophet. He is the leader of the people. He is everything. And nobody talks bad about Moses. Nobody. And so they have laid the groundwork for Jesus to go, well, Moses was wrong, or Moses didn't know what Moses was talking about, all of which would have instantly had the crowd turn on him, because we don't talk bad about Moses. It's like Thomas Jefferson in Charlottesville. We don't talk bad about Thomas Jefferson in Charlottesville. So here he is, and he says, it is because you were so hard-hearted. It's not Moses' fault. It's your fault. That's why we have issues here, because you all can't pay attention to what you're supposed to be doing. Because Moses commanded us that we would do this, because from the begin- but from the beginning, it was not so. In the beginning, this is not how it happened. And Jesus says at verse 9, But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for unchastity or adultery, and marries another, commits adultery. And here we have this major prohibition against divorce, except for the case of adultery. And unfortunately, people have taken Jesus' words here, and they have used it to hurt people for centuries. We have used this text to beat people down, to tell them that they can no longer be a part of the church, or to tell them that they are unworthy and unloved because they have failed to live up to what Jesus says. Well, first of all, they're taking Jesus out of context. And second of all, I don't think we use Scripture to hurt people. I don't think that's an appropriate use of the word of God that is supposed to be liberation from bondage rather than a a means to socially shun people. So this text is a very difficult text at any rate. But this is a prohibition for heterosexual people in marriage that Jesus is exploring. 
And then they seem to stop. The Pharisees kind of end. And our text shifts right into a conversation with Jesus and his disciples. What we're missing here that is described more clearly in other passages is that Jesus would would have a moment where he was preaching or he was teaching the crowds or he was having an encounter with the Pharisees or with someone. And then later on, when they were by themselves, the disciples would ask questions. They had enough sense to not do it in front of other people because, one, they looked like they didn't know what was going on. Spoiler alert half the time the disciples knew nothing about what was going on very confused but they wouldn't do that in front of other people they weren't going to be like Jesus how come you don't know what you're talking about in front of the Pharisees that would not go well and so instead they would wait until they were alone often so that they didn't look like fools and so they do this they wait and then they say well if this is the case with a man with his wife then it's better for no one to marry they sound like Paul You see why I did it in this order now? Because you're all like, that's so Paul. Because Paul was just telling people, stop having sex, lock it down. Jesus is coming back. We're all waiting for Jesus to come back really soon. Let's just calm down. And the apostles immediately take that road. If it's this hard, then maybe we shouldn't get married. Maybe we should just stay separate and stay apart and just not give in to this inclination. And Jesus follows this up rather quickly. He says, not everyone can accept this but only those to whom it is given. So to whom is it given? Well, in the beginning it was given to them, but then because we've decided to put Bibles everywhere across the world and publish them in over 64 languages, um, we all have this teaching now. So now we all have to wrestle with it. And then Jesus goes on to give one of the hardest lessons that I have ever read in all of the books of the Bible. This is the one that I struggle with constantly because it is so difficult to unpack and apply. Jesus goes on to name three categories of eunuchs, and eunuchs are men who have been castrated. Their testicles have been removed. That has implications for how they talk, implications for how they live their life, and generally, this was something that was done specifically for people who were in the employ of a monarch because they were given a special task and duty and role in the life of the palace, and one of those duties was to guard the queen and any other wives or concubines, the women of the monarch, and you didn't want somebody who was viable doing that, so they would castrate them. Their repayment for not being able to engage in sexual activity and not being able to procreate was that they were often powerful, they had a lot of authority within the palace, they were often wealthy, and they got to live in the palace. They were compensated with earthly means because they were no longer going to be able to enjoy sexual activity or to procreate. And so Jesus starts to talk about eunuchs. And this whole time, this is a male conversation. Male Pharisees show up because women were not Pharisees. And they show up and they're talking to Jesus and his male disciples. And now we've moved into talking about eunuchs who are men. And Jesus says that there are three types. The first type are eunuchs who have been that way since birth. People who are born with either a deformity or a malady, they might have an illness, something has happened to them, maybe even through the birthing process, where they are not able to have intercourse. Or some of them may be those who claim to be asexual. They do not feel a sexual proclivity anyway. And so they don't feel the urge to reproduce or to engage in sexual activity. That's the first one. The second one are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. These are the eunuchs that were most prolific in Jesus' day and age. These were the ones that were working in palaces. These were the ones that had political clout. These are the same ones that, are, that have a significant prohibition against them in the Torah. 
And if you'll remember when we did this, the series that included Philip and the eunuch, Philip could have used the fact that you could easily identify a eunuch generally by the tone of their voice because they had had their entire structure changed with the castration. He could have used that and the underpinnings of the Torah to deny his encounter with the eunuch, except the Holy Spirit was driving to him, him to that, and so he embraced it and ended up baptizing the man. So we have this long-standing issue with eunuchs in the scriptures. But then Jesus throws out the grenade. And then there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, does this mean that people are engaging in pseudo-surgical procedures? No. Jesus has shifted into talking about hyperbole. There are people who will choose not to express themselves sexually for the glory of the kingdom. And if we sit with that for a moment, it becomes very uncomfortable because it seems so unfair. Why are some people allowed to express themselves sexually if others are not? How is that okay? And then how is anyone supposed to live up to that? Right now in the United Methodist Church, the prohibition against acting out sexually is solely for clergy. Lay persons, no matter what their sexual orientation or their sexual expression, are welcome to be church members, participate in the fullness of the life of the church, receive the fullness of ministry. They would never be kept from any of our sacraments, whether baptism or Holy Communion. They can serve on all of our committees. You can serve on any of our boards. There is nothing to prevent you from experiencing the fullness of what it is to be a United Methodist because of your sexuality or lack thereof. The prohibition rests for clergy, and we vow and we covenant with the church that if we are in heterosexual marriage, that we will be faithful, that we will not commit adultery, and we will not engage in an open marriage. We also covenant that if we are single, whether we are heteronormative or not, that we will be celibate. And you might say that for heterosexual clergy, that might just be a season of celibacy, a short-term thing, for they can get remarried in the Methodist church, they can get married, and then they can live out their sexuality in heteronormativity. Maybe, except that in the United Methodist Church, we do ordain people who would not claim to be heterosexual, but they must be celibate. That's the requirement that is placed upon them. And the question is, is this something that we are forcing people into or something that they choose? Jesus says that there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs. The modus operandi here seems to be choosing for yourself whether this is what you want. It's not something that is put upon, but something that you choose, a mantle that you take on. And that sounds really unfair in a hypersexualized culture like we have here in the United States. It doesn't sound like it's equal or that it's something by which most people would even desire, much less aspire. And yet Jesus showed us that it was possible. Jesus pushed back against the culture and the normative notions of his day. Here was Jesus at the age of 30. He was the firstborn. Joseph's adopted. He had been trained in Joseph's craft. He should have inherited the family business. He would have been ready to inherit over two-thirds of any estate. Not that there would have been a, a great deal of estate because Mary and Joseph were not thriving rich people. But that he would have been prepared to carry on his family and take care of his mother and his siblings until they were of age to be married off. He was ready to step into that role. And then at the age of 30, he did something that no one would have been okay with. He went into ministry. He walked away. In fact, Matthew says that he actually went and made his home away from Nazareth out in Capernaum. 
He left completely. They would have seen that as abandonment of family. He should have been getting married. He should have been starting his own family. How could he walk away and abandon them? Because the mantle he took on was one of ministry. And he made choices because of that, and he showed his apostles that it could be done. And he revealed to us that it can be done. And what we wrestle with now as the church is, is this what should be done? And who decides what should be done and who shouldn't? Is it upon the individual? Is it upon the church? Is it some relationship between the two? From where do we find our authority and what do we require? How many times have we sung that? What does the Lord require of you? It's a very personal question. And all of us have different answers. And so today, as we continue to wrestle with what human sexuality in the church looks like, we have to acknowledge that all of us are being asked, where do we find ourselves in this passage? Who are we called to be? And what are we called to help other people achieve? It's a very difficult text. In fact, the more that I've studied it over the last three weeks, the more I've gone, Jesus, you're not helping. You're making this worse. In fact, it did make it worse because how many times do you look to Jesus and you just want the answer, the perfect answer? Just give me the answer, God, because somewhere in our heads we say, look, if you give me the answer, I will abide by it. And we all know that that's not true because we have a New Testament because we couldn't abide by the Old Testament. We all know that people just say, just tell me what you want. God the Father did this, gave us 613 commandments. Here's exactly what you must do in order to be right and just before me. Here's exactly what you need. And the people went, okay, got it, peace. And they left. They stopped the relationship. They walked away. They didn't continue to discern and knit themselves closer together and with God. Instead, they said, we know what you want. We got it. And they walked away. And so perhaps there's a hesitancy from God the Son to do the same thing, to tell us precisely what we need to do, but instead to encourage us through our cultivation of relationship with God and others to discern what is right. And knowing this, Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit. Knowing that there would be hard and difficult work ahead, God sent to us the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't just whisper the, the answer in our ear. It's not helping us to cheat on the final exam. Instead, it's requiring us to do hard work. And we do this work because of what is at stake. The world is watching. Even now, all of the major news outlets and medias and networks are preparing to send their crews to St. Louis. They are going to watch what we say, how we say it, and what we do with it afterwards because the stakes are so high. We have to realize where we are. Every major institutionalized Protestant denomination that has had this discussion has broken. Their effectiveness in mission and ministry has been halved instantaneously because of how they had the conversation. The Presbyterians, the Lutherans, the Episcopalians, they have all had this conversation and they have broken. What's at stake is the second largest denomination in the world of Protestantism is getting ready to finally have it. And after us, there are no other conversations because the two largest denominations in Christianity are the Roman Catholics and the Baptist contingent, and they're not having this conversation. They refuse to have this conversation. They won't even talk about whether I can be ordained. They're not going to talk about this. And so they have completely just cut off having the conversation. We are 
it. We are the last ones. And I can tell you that from what I'm already reading online, that these news groups expect to roll in and watch the last great church break. They expect to see us fail. And nothing makes me more upset or anxious or depressed or hopeless than to hear that that's the expectation that the world throws on us. But I've done a lot of reading of this Bible. I've read many Bibles many times, and I know this. I know that on our own, when it is our way, we can do nothing. Absolutely nothing. But when we choose God's way, everything is possible. Everything can be done. We have invested so much time, years now, and energy, and countless funds. In fact, nobody will give me a number, even though I've asked, so I think it's probably hundreds of millions of dollars have been sunk already into this endeavor. And it's all been done so that we don't do it the way others did it, that we can do it differently. And everybody has come up with plans and amendments, and everything that I've read so far doesn't sound like God. It sounds like our way. And so when I'm going there and I'm camped out and I'm waiting and I'm watching, I am waiting for that moment when God drops it in the middle of us and goes, I had the answer the whole time. I had it. Because time and time again, the scriptures record this, that human beings mess it up, can't figure out the answer, and God says, here, I have your answer. I can do this. Because when we rely on ourselves and our ingenuity and we think that we have the answers and that we can figure it out on our own, we are wrong. But every time in the scriptures and in church history, when we set aside our egos and what we think is our intelligence and we embrace the Holy Spirit, the answer is so clear. It comes to us. And all the rest of us are going, why didn't I think of that? Because we're not God. And Jesus in our text and Jesus today lays down things that don't seem to make sense. He says things that are opaque. He says things that we just yearn for some clarity so that we can understand what we're seeing. And in the end, what we discover is that it is only when we are unified, when we are committed to being the body of Christ, that any of this makes any sense. They gathered at the table on the night in which Jesus was betrayed and they ate the first Holy Communion and none of them understood what was going on. None of them. They even argue with him that night that he cannot die. None of us would betray you. Who's betray you? Peter's like, I will never betray you. Jesus is like, rooster, three times, dawn. Jesus knows that when we sink into us, that we lose the God. When we sink into who we are and what we want, we lose God's purpose. And that's what happened to Peter that night. The minute that he said, I would never forsake you, Jesus is like, you just became all about you and not about me. And our task, because not all of us are going to call General Conference, but all of us will be united in General Conference, all of us, by the power and the miraculous union of the Holy Spirit, will be there. How many of you have known that people or a group or even one person was praying for you and you could feel it? You could feel it. You knew. Methodists all over the world have been struggling with this. They have been 
working. Not everybody's crazy enough to do this in worship. Some of them have been doing it in small groups. Some have been doing it as individual devotions and, and working through this on their own. But those of us that have been working through this have been doing it so that we are ready. We have to prepare ourselves and then God shall deliver us. That's biblical. If we prepare, God will deliver us. God said to the people who were in bondage for 400 years in Egypt, if you prepare tonight, eat this meal, keep your coat on, don't take off your sandals, have your sticks in your hands, and you be ready, and tomorrow I shall lead you to freedom. If we do the work now, and we are committed that the moment God throws down the answer that we will go, we shall see the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is built upon grace and unity with Jesus Christ. We are United Methodists. We are living proof that people who should not be together are in Jesus Christ. Because the last great prolific and powerful encounter in the Methodist Church was in 1968 in Dallas, Texas, when the Evangelical United Brethren merged their denomination with the Methodist Episcopal Church and created the United Methodist Church. And people all over the world said, that is ridiculous. And unless you're a scholar of denominationalism in church history, you're probably going, what? Because the United Methodists are descended from the Anglican Church. We are one step or King Henry VIII's divorce from Catholics. We're really close. The other side, the Evangelical United Brethren, trace themselves back to Germany and Baptist and Anabaptists. Say Anabaptist around a Methodist. They get all weird inside. Because that's not who we are. But you can bring Catholics and Baptists together. The Holy Spirit can. The Holy Spirit did. And the Holy Spirit can do even more if we are willing to join our will with God's. I don't know what's going to happen but I know that what should happen is that we all submit ourselves to God's will and that if we open our hearts and our minds and our spirits to look for that moment, that it shall be. Because the other thing Jesus told us was, if you ask it in my name, I will do it. Right now, we're all asking in the name of our caucus or our friends or our personal feelings. But if all of us from every end of the spectrum would simply lay down our burdens, lay down our notions and our preconceived ideas of what the United Methodist Church should say and do, and we open ourselves up, God is going to do something that none of us could have imagined. Is that not the story of the gospel? That God can do things that no one saw coming. We are at the precipice of either showing the world that this truly is the body of Christ or we're going to show the world that we're as human as everybody else. We came here as humans, but have we not been given the gift of the Holy Spirit? Have we not been made into something much greater than we as individuals could ever hope to be? We are the living, breathing body of Christ, and the world needs that now because the kingdom cannot be stopped let us continue to wrestle and to pray and to acknowledge that this is not easy 
This is not easy. And I am probably more confused now than I was before. Last night, I was packing my luggage and trying to figure out how to put my shoes in my luggage because I normally travel in flats. And Doug Gaskell was like, you can't send me pictures from General Conference of you in flats. So I figured out how to pack shoes only by the grace of God. And then as I'm packing and I'm, con I'm conversing with God and I'm getting ready for today and all of a sudden I get distracted, I get focused on something else. And I was like, God, I just need you to just give me the answer. Just give me the answer, because I'm almost done with this sermon series, and I still don't have the answer. God's like, in due time, and not a second before. You will have the answer when the time is right. I believe the biblical word is in the fullness of time. And we will get there, because we are committed to getting there together. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.